Welcome to the Perennials Podcast Book Club. I'm Victoria Russell, and today you're listening to Chapter 32 of Anne of Green Gables by L.M. Montgomery. After the chapter reading, you'll hear reflections between me and my friend Katie Russo talking about the chapter. Katie and I talk about test anxiety, pressures on teenage students, and Katie's experience of being valedictorian of her class. Without further ado, here is chapter 32, The Pass List is Out. With the end of June came the close of the term and the close of Miss Stacy's rule in Avonlea School. Anne and Diana walked home that evening feeling very sober indeed. Red eyes and damp handkerchiefs bore convincing testimony to the fact that Miss Stacy's farewell words must have been quite as touching as Mr. Phillips had been under similar circumstances three years before. Diana looked back at the schoolhouse from the foot of the spruce hill and sighed deeply. "'It does seem as if it was the end of everything, doesn't it?' she said dismally. "'You oughtn't to feel half as badly as I do,' said Anne, hunting vainly for a dry spot on her handkerchief. "'You'll be back again next winter, but I suppose I've left the dear old school forever, if I have good luck, that is.' "'It won't be a bit the same.' "'Miss Stacy won't be there, nor you, nor Jane, nor Ruby, probably. "'I shall have to sit all alone, for I couldn't bear to have another deskmate after you. "'Oh, we have had jolly times, haven't we, Anne? "'It's dreadful to think they're all over.' Two big tears rolled down by Diana's nose. "'If you would stop crying, I could,' said Anne imploringly. "'Just as soon as I put away my hanky, I see you brimming up, and that starts me off again. "'As Mrs. Lynde says, if you can't be cheerful, be as cheerful as you can.' After all, I dare say I'll be back next year. This is one of the times I know I'm not going to pass. They're getting alarmingly frequent. Why, you came out splendidly in the exams Miss Stacy gave. Yes, but those exams didn't make me nervous. When I think of the real thing, you can't imagine what a hard, cold, fluttery feeling comes round my heart. And then my number is 13, and Josie Pye says it's so unlucky. I am not superstitious, and I know it can make no difference. But still, I wish it wasn't 13. "'I do wish I were going in with you,' said Diana. "'Wouldn't we have a perfectly elegant time? "'But I suppose you'll have to cram in the evenings.' "'No. Miss Stacy has made us promise not to open a book at all. "'She says it would only tire and confuse us, "'and we are to go out walking and not think about the exams at all, "'and go to bed early. "'It's good advice, but I expect it will be hard to follow. "'Good advice is apt to be, I think.' Prissy Andrews told me that she sat up half the night every night of her entrance exam and crammed for dear life, and I had determined to sit up at least as long as she did. It was so kind of your Aunt Josephine to ask me to stay at Beechwood while I'm in town. You'll write to me while you're in, won't you? I'll write Tuesday night and tell you how the first day goes, promised Anne. I'll be haunting the post office Wednesday, vowed Diana. Anne went to town the following Monday, and on Wednesday Diana haunted the post office, as agreed, and got her letter. "'Dearest Diana,' wrote Anne, "'here it is Tuesday night, and I'm writing this in the library at Beechwood. Last night I was horribly lonesome all alone in my room, and wished so much you were with me. I couldn't cram because I'd promised Miss Stacy not to, but it was as hard to keep from opening my history as it used to be to keep me from reading a story before my lessons were learned.' This morning, Miss Stacy came for me, and we went to the academy, calling for Jane and Ruby and Josie on our way. Ruby asked me to feel her hands, and they were cold as ice. Josie said I looked as if I hadn't slept a wink, and she didn't believe I was strong enough to stand the grind of the teacher's course even if I did get through. There are times and seasons, even yet, when I don't feel that I've made any great headway in learning to like Josie Pye. When we reached the academy, there were scores of students there from all over the island. The first person we saw was Moody Spurgeon, sitting on the steps and muttering away to himself. 
Jane asked him what on earth he was doing, and he said he was repeating the multiplication table over and over to steady his nerves, and for pity's sake not to interrupt him, because if he stopped for a moment he got frightened, and forgot everything he ever knew, but the multiplication table kept all his facts firmly in their proper place. When we were assigned to our rooms, Miss Stacy had to leave us. Jane and I sat together, and Jane was so composed that I envied her. No need of the multiplication table for good, steady, sensible Jane. I wondered if I looked as I felt, and if they could hear my heart thumping clear across the room. Then a man came in and began distributing the English examination sheets. My hands grew cold then, and my head fairly whirled round as I picked it up. Just one awful moment. Diana, I felt exactly as I did four years ago when I asked Marilla if I might stay at Green Gables. And then everything cleared up in my mind, and my heart began beating again. I forgot to say that it had stopped altogether, for I knew I could do something with that paper anyhow. At noon we went home for dinner, and then back again for history in the afternoon. The history was a pretty hard paper, and I got dreadfully mixed up in the dates. Still, I think I did fairly well today. But, oh, Diana, tomorrow the geometry exam comes off, and when I think of it, it takes every bit of determination I possess to keep from opening my Euclid. If I thought the multiplication table would help me any, I would recite it from now till tomorrow morning. I went down to see the other girls this evening. On my way, I met Moody Spurgeon wandering distractedly around. He said he knew he had failed in history, and he was born to be a disappointment to his parents, and he was going home on the morning train, and it would be easier to be a carpenter than a minister anyhow. I cheered him up and persuaded him to stay to the end because it would be unfair to Miss Stacy if he didn't. Sometimes I have wished I was born a boy, but when I see Moody Spurgeon, I'm always glad I'm a girl and not his sister. Ruby was in hysterics when I reached their boarding house. She had just discovered a fearful mistake she had made in her English paper. When she recovered, we went uptown and had an ice cream. How we wished you had been with us. Oh, Diana, if only the geometry examination were over. But there, as Mrs. Lynde would say, the sun will go on rising and setting whether I fail in geometry or not. That is true, but not especially comforting. I think I'd rather it didn't go on if I failed. Yours devotedly, Anne. The geometry examination and all the others were over in due time, and Anne arrived home on Friday evening, rather tired but with an air of chastened triumph about her. Diana was over at Green Gables when she arrived, and they met as if they had been parted for years. "'You old darling, it's perfectly splendid to see you back again. It seems like an age since you went to town, and oh, Anne, how did you get along?' "'Pretty well, I think, in everything but the geometry.' "'I don't know whether I passed in it or not, and I have a creepy, crawly presentiment that I didn't. Oh, how good it is to be back. Green Gables is the dearest, loveliest spot in the world. How did the others do? The girls say they know they didn't pass, but I think they did pretty well. Josie says the geometry was so easy a child of ten could do it. Moody Spurgeon still thinks he failed in history, and Charlie says he failed in algebra. But we don't really know anything about it, and won't until the pass list is out. That won't be for a fortnight. Fancy living a fortnight in such suspense. I wish I could go to sleep and never wake up until it is over. Diana knew it would be useless to ask how Gilbert Blythe had fared, so she merely said, "'Oh, you'll pass all right. Don't worry.' "'I'd rather not pass at all than not come out pretty well up on the list,' flashed Anne, by which she meant, and Diana knew she meant, that success would be incomplete and bitter if she did not come out ahead of Gilbert Blythe. With this end in view, Anne had strained every nerve during the examinations. So had Gilbert.' They had met and passed each other on the street a dozen times without any sign of recognition, and every time Anne had held her head a little higher and wished a little more earnestly that she had made friends with Gilbert when he asked her, and vowed a little more determinedly to surpass him in the examination. She knew that all Avonlea Jr. was wondering which would come out first. She even knew that Jimmy Glover and Ned Wright had a bet on the question, and that Josie Pye had said there was no doubt in the world that Gilbert would be first, and she felt that her humiliation would be unbearable if she failed." 
but she had another and nobler motive for wishing to do well. She wanted to pass high for the sake of Matthew and Marilla, especially Matthew. Matthew had declared to her his conviction that she would beat the whole island. That, Anne felt, was something it would be foolish to hope for even in the wildest dreams. But she did hope fervently that she would be among the first ten at least, so that she might see Matthew's kindly brown eyes gleam with pride in her achievement. That, she felt, would be a sweet reward indeed for all her hard work and patient grubbing among unimaginative equations and conjugations. At the end of the fortnight, Anne took to haunting the post office also, in the distracted company of Jane, Ruby, and Josie, opening in the Charlottetown dailies with shaking hands and cold sink-away feelings as bad as any experience during the entrance week. Charlie and Gilbert were not above doing this, too, but Moody Spurgeon stayed resolutely away. "'I haven't got the grit to go there and look at a paper in cold blood,' he told Anne. "'I'm just going to wait until somebody comes and tells me suddenly whether I've passed or not.' When three weeks had gone by without the pass list appearing, Anne began to feel that she really couldn't stand the strain any longer. Her appetite failed and her interest in Avonlea doings languished. Mrs. Lynde wanted to know what else you could expect with the Tory superintendent of education at the head of affairs, and Matthew, noting Anne's paleness and indifference, and the lagging steps that bore her home from the post office every afternoon, began seriously to wonder if he hadn't better vote grit at the next election. But one evening the news came. Anne was sitting at her open window, for the time forgetful of the woes of examinations and the cares of the world, as she drank in the beauty of the summer dusk, sweet-scented with flower-breaths from the garden below, and sibilant and rustling from the stir of poplars. The eastern sky above the firs was flushed faintly pink from the reflection of the west, and Anne was wondering dreamily if the spirit of color looked like that, when she saw Diana come flying down through the firs, over the log bridge, and up the slope with a fluttering newspaper in her hand. Anne sprang to her feet, knowing at once what that paper contained. The pass list was out. Her head whirled and her heart beat until it hurt her. She could not move a step. It seemed an hour to her before Diana came rushing along the hall and burst into the room without even knocking, so great was her excitement. "'Anne, you've passed!' she cried. "'Passed the very first! You and Gilbert both. Your ties. But your name is first. Oh, I'm so proud!' Diana flung the paper on the table and herself on Anne's bed, utterly breathless and incapable of further speech. Anne lighted the lamp, oversetting the match safe and using up half a dozen matches before her shaking hands could accomplish the task. Then she snatched up the paper. Yes, she had passed. There was her name at the very top of a list of two hundred. That moment was worth living for. "'You did just splendidly, Anne,' puffed Diana, recovering sufficiently to sit up and speak, for Anne, starry-eyed and rapt, had not uttered a word. Father brought the paper home from Bright River not ten minutes ago. It came out on the afternoon train, you know, and won't be here till tomorrow by mail. And when I saw the pass list, I just rushed over like a wild thing. You've all passed, every one of you, Moody Spurgeon and all, although he's conditioned in history. Jane and Ruby did pretty well. They're halfway up, and so did Charlie. Josie just scraped through with three marks to spare, but you'll see she'll put on as many airs as if she'd led. Won't Miss Stacy be delighted? Oh, Anne, what does it feel like to see your name at the head of a pass list like that? If it were me, I know I'd go crazy with joy. I am pretty near crazy as it is, but you're as calm and cool as a spring evening. I'm just dazzled inside, said Anne. I want to say a hundred things and I can't find words to say them in. I never dreamed of this. Yes, I did too, just once. I let myself think once. What if I should come out first? quakingly, you know, for it seemed so vain and presumptuous to think I could lead the island. Excuse me a minute, Diana. I must run out to the field to tell Matthew. Then we'll go up the road and tell the good news to the others. 
They hurried to the hayfield below the barn where Matthew was coiling hay, and, as luck would have it, Mrs. Lynde was talking to Marilla at the lane fence. "'Oh, Matthew!' exclaimed Anne. "'I've passed and I'm first, or one of the first. I'm not vain, but I'm thankful.' "'Well, now, I always said it,' said Matthew, gazing at the pass list delightedly. "'I knew you could beat them all easy.' "'You've done pretty well, I must say, Anne,' said Marilla, trying to hide her extreme pride in Anne from Mrs. Rachel's critical eye. But that good soul said heartily, "'I just guess she has done well, and far be it from me to be backward in saying it. You're a credit to your friends, Anne, that's what, and we're all proud of you.'" That night Anne, who had wound up a delightful evening by a serious little talk with Mrs. Allen at the manse, knelt sweetly on her knelt sweetly by her open window in a great sheen of moonshine, and murmured a prayer of gratitude and aspiration that came straight from her heart. There was in it thankfulness for the past, and reverent petition for the future, and when she slept on her white pillow, her dreams were as fair and bright and beautiful as maidenhood might desire. Katie, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Can you tell us a little bit about your relationship to Anne and to the book? Like, are you a first time yeah. Green Gables so, reader? Yes. This is my first time reading it, although I'm listening, not reading. Um, and I actually had the book, the whole series, my like whole life, it feels like. I think my grandmother got it for me. And it was one of those things that it was always there. And I just felt like this pressure of like, you should read this. So then I obstinately did not want to read it and never did. And so they remain unopened in a box in my basement. Um, and it's so funny because I definitely would have loved this as a kid. Mm. What do you think has drawn you to the book now? Like, what is it that you, that you really connect with? Um, well, you read it wonderfully. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. Um, you know, it's the descriptions are wonderful. Um, I feel like almost every chapter starts with just this description of where they live, but then also there's a lot of dialogue and that keeps it moving really quickly. Um, And I think the type of story it is, is also um, one of my favorites. It kind of reminds me a little bit of like a tree grows in Brooklyn where there's no like main conflict or plot point, but somehow you're engrossed the entire time and you don't even know why but you just have to keep reading and know what happens it's it's been interesting to hear a lot of people connect with the descriptions of nature and the landscape and it is so interesting how place like my mind always goes to characters first but when I think about the stories that I love even like tv shows and things like that like Gilmore Girls you know Stars Hollow is the setting and I feel like people are just as in love with Stars Hollow, which is kind of like an Avonlea type place mm-hmm. as they are with the characters. And it's like a character unto itself in this place that you would love to just like escape to. So, and the Marilla and relationship is wonderful to watch unfold. Yeah. Okay. So let's do a little lightning round. Okay. Which character in the book do you relate to the most? Or are there different parts of characters that you relate to strongly? So actually, I probably am most similar to probably one of the other girls in her class that are just kind of a little in awe and jealous of Anne (laughs) because she's so outgoing and so sure of herself as a person. 
that it's like intimidating to be around. Mm. And now as an adult, I definitely relate to Marilla the most because, well, I now have a child and also um, she has such a hard time being vulnerable. Um, And I feel like that is very relatable now for me. Yeah. Can I tell you who I was think who came into my mind for you? Sure. <laughs> Especially reading this chapter. I actually thought of Jane Andrews because mm. she's her friend who's like very, she's very practical. We've never heard anything like unkind coming from Jane. She says something about her having very steady nerves. Yeah. Her- yeah. In the letter that Anne writes to Diana, she says, Jane and I sat together and Jane was so composed that I envied her. No need of the multiplication table for good, steady, sensible Jane. <laughs> and Jane is also the one who, when they're talking about their futures and like why they want to become teachers, she's very like practical about that as well. And she's mm-hmm. like, I don't want to get married there. Like men are <laughs> like, you know, I can't remember how she said it. it was something kind of funny. And obviously like you're married and have your family and all of that. But there's just something like about you that I feel like is very steady and like yeah. sensible and kind. And that's always the vibe that I get from Jane Andrews. Yeah, I could see that. <laughs> um, do you feel like you relate to Marilla's sense of worry when it comes to being a mom now, like I feel like Marilla, she struggles with vulnerability, which I totally agree is very relatable. And another piece that I relate to is like her mind just goes to like worst case scenario a lot Mm. with Anne. Like she's instantly like, like when the doctor in a previous chapter is telling her to let Anne, you know, like play outside more, she's like, oh my God, she's going to die of consumption. Like her mind just (laughs) instantly goes there. So I'm curious, like as a mom now, Joey's all he'll be one in October. Is that right? Um, the end of the the end of this month, actually. Oh, okay. Yeah. So yeah. do you do you like relate to that worry piece at all? Yes, definitely. My mind always goes to worst case scenario of like, oh my god, he's gonna fall off the couch and crack his head open. <laughs> Instead yeah. of just like he fell off the couch once and just got a bruise. Like it wasn't that big of a deal. But um, but I think what resonates with me more actually is that Marilla cares what other people in the town think about her Mm. um, and not wanting to be vulnerable in that sense of showing all her emotions because then people can like judge her or say things about her and she seems to really care about that. Mm. Um, Which I think I relate to more. Yeah especially reading a book about an adolescent and bringing me back to that time where I definitely cared a lot more. Yes. Okay. I'm curious if you have a favorite mistake or like mess up that Anne makes. I think actually my favorite is one of her most recent when she goes down the river and almost drowns and has to get rescued. Um, because that little like, mini romance between her and Gilbert is such a slow burn um and it's just like sweet and then also you're like and no he clearly likes you I almost feel like it's like like this underlying nervousness or embarrassment Mm -hmm. or at least that's what I'm projecting onto it she doesn't want to go back on what her previous opinions were so like Mm. if she totally flip-flops what would people think or right 
you know, she doesn't want to admit that she was wrong. And she's now only doing it in her head. And she still hasn't, like, told Diana or anyone. Right. Yeah, that's a good point. Because she's, like, she's definitely very proud. So kind of in that vein, I'm wondering if there's a moment in the book that stands out to you as a time when an adult in her life gave her a good piece of advice or did a good job responding to Anne in a moment where she really needed some sort of like adult guidance. Yeah. You know, I feel like I can't remember a specific instance, but I feel like as she gets older, Marilla clearly understands her more and gives Mm -hmm. her a little bit more room. Like, to be herself or to stumble through things. I don't know. It's just the impression I get from the dialogue of just like giving her a little more space and not being so, you need to do this, this, and this, and in this way, you know, her comments are a little bit more sarcastic. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think also that might also be because the, I feel like the pace of the novel sped up as Mm -hmm. well. Um, so we get a little bit less of those specific instances towards the end. Okay. My, my final question for this round is, do you have a favorite piece of wisdom or lesson or just something that you have been taking with you from the book that has informed your life in, in any small way as you've been reading it? just the experience of like sitting down and listening to it, even though sometimes I'm driving Um, But just like taking that space to be like, well, now I'm going to relax and I'm going to put this on and like, I don't have to be going, 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 or listening to the news or, you know, whatever else I feel like I should be doing in that moment. Um, And then I I also feel like this is more specific to your question, but there's one thing that Anne says in this chapter Mm. that I was like, it really stuck out to me when she says, she says something about good advice is hard to follow. Yeah, I wrote that down too. Yeah. Good advice is apt to be hard to follow, yeah. basically, she says, which is so true. I wrote down a question about like asking you what you thought of if, if you felt that way too. Um, so that's actually a really good transition into the chapter. Yeah. So we could just kind of we could go from there. I mean, there are some other things that happen a bit earlier in the chapter, but, but I would love to actually just stay with that question of Anne. Anne's talking about how Miss Stacy tells them, you know, when they are going to take their exams, they shouldn't study or cram. They should just go for walks and go to bed early. And, and like you said, she says, it's good advice, but I expect it will be hard to follow as good advice is apt to be. So uh, yeah, I would love to hear you reflect on that a little more. And like, is there a piece of advice you've gotten recently? Um, and you, recent could be loose, you know, <laughs> but that um, that you've been feeling like is hard to follow. I don't even know if someone gave me this advice, but just learning to let go of certain things. Mm. It's just so, and it's like little things that don't matter at all, but then you have to constantly coach yourself. Don't, don't think about it. Don't pay attention. Like it's not that big of a deal. Um, which actually, while we're on the subject of advice, I feel like there's another part in this chapter where Mrs. Lynn says something 
um, or just in general, how advice can be good. And then sometimes it's not so good. I think in her letter, she says something about, oh, Mrs. Lind would say the sun will go on rising and setting whether oh, yeah. I think geometry or not. That is true, but not especially comforting. I think mm -hmm. I'd rather it didn't go on if I failed. And just that got me thinking about how, um, when, especially as a mom, when you like complain or vent about something that a baby is doing, you get a lot of flat advice of just like, well, you wanted to be a mom or, you know, babies do that or get ready for the next thing that's going to happen. And it's like, none of that is helpful. Yeah. <laughs> like I really would just love some concrete ideas on how to get my baby to sleep better. I don't need a platitude about how like it'll be gone in a blink of an eye. Like I know that already. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> just makes the other person feel very not seen. I think. Right. There's almost like some, like what you're identifying. There's almost like this weird, like sense of blame. I don't know. You just want someone to like be in it with you and acknowledge that like there are certain things in life that don't have easy answers and aren't easy and aren't easily fixable. And sometimes you just want someone to like be in that with you and just, it's yeah. a tricky thing, but. Or just simply say, I know that sucks. Right. And I feel like in that moment with Anne and she's freaking out about her test and she just needs someone to say, yeah, it's really stressful. I get it. Um, and instead she got like, well, whether you pass or not, tomorrow's a new day kind of thing. Yeah. And to her, it's like her life has been revolving around this for a really long time. Like they've been yeah. studying for like a year. Two years. Right? Two yeah. Years. Yeah. This chapter starts with, you know, Miss Stacy is going to be leaving the school and the students are going off to take their exams. And I just, I feel so bad for Diana kind of being mm -hmm. like left behind and everything about this chapter reminded me so much of being like a junior in high school and taking the SATs Yes, and looking yeah. at colleges and things like that. And you're at this point where people are going to be going off down different paths and there's so much like anticipatory anxiety and like pressure to succeed. Um, it's just like this whole chapter just felt like soaked in anxiety. <laughs> yeah. It brought me back. Um, I was actually really glad that this is the chapter we got to talk about um, because I don't know, I don't talk about this a lot because I don't know, it feels braggy and we can address that later, but <laughs> I was actually valedictorian of my high school class. Oh my gosh, I didn't know and that. I, I feel like that's not something that people who know me now know about me. Whereas like, obviously then everyone knew that. And it got me thinking like, why do people not know that about me? Mm. And I feel like there's a moment in the chapter where Anne says, um, like she wanted to be, she would never think about being the first on the list, except once she let herself think that. And I wonder if part of that is like, she didn't want to appear vain and presumptuous. And I feel like that's definitely something that's ingrained in girls to not not brag about that kind of stuff or not brag about their achievements, especially when they're like number one at something. Mm -hmm. um, and then, yeah, just it really brought me back to that, all that pressure of like, well, I have to have good grades and like 
doing, taking the SATs and trying to get to like that perfect score, which I knew I couldn't get, but also like I did really, really well. And then felt like I shouldn't really brag about that because other people didn't do as well. Yeah. So I kind of tried to keep it on the DL, like what I actually got on my SATs. So being valedictorian, I feel like, is that something that you were trying to achieve? Um, Because I remember hearing friends of mine um, who were in, like a bunch of my friends were in the top 10 of our Mm -hmm. graduating class. And like, they were being, they were so strategic. They were like, I'm going to take these AP classes. And like, they were gunning for like the way that Anne and Gilbert (laughs) are kind of like that, like they were gunning for it. Yeah. Um, so, so here are my disclaimers that I always undercut my achievements with. <laughs> is that I um, went to a really small school, so there were only 125-ish people in the class. Um, and also, I didn't find the school that challenging. I feel like competitive, not, not competitive-wise, but I feel like other high schools were harder like I had friends in other schools that have way more homework and way more intense studies than I did. Um, so I didn't find it hard to achieve like my good grades, but I do recall now that you've mentioned it, I took an art class my senior year just cause I wanted to. And I was actually like nervous about that because it doesn't count as highly towards mm-hmm. your score as like the AP classes did. Um, but it was one of those things where after like freshman year, I was like, wait, I'm what number in the class? <laughs> and then like, it wasn't something that was on my mind until I knew about it. And then it was like, well, I just need to keep doing what I'm doing. And definitely had that pressure of like, I need to get all A's, yeah. um, which I didn't release that pressure for myself until college, basically. I found myself like, like in terms of it being a story, I'm like, really happy for Anne and like that she's like winning but but there's also like so much pressure and she's so stressed out about it like she feels when she's like waiting for the grade she loses her appetite and she has like no interest in life and mm-hmm. it's like really sad too yeah well this also was really intense I felt like the list shows everyone's score like yeah crazy But I also wonder for Anne if part of the need to do that well is to kind of like prove her worth, like being an orphan and not really belonging. So needing, feeling the need that she needs to prove that she's deserving of whatever love or friendship she has acquired in the past four years. Yeah. Yeah. I felt that too. Like there's definitely something I could understand her feeling a need to prove herself and to be better than like, right. I'm curious if you relate to the test anxiety that Anne has. Cause she, you know, she talks about how she does well on Miss Stacy's test, but that's because she's not nervous. And, um, so this feels like a whole different ball game to her. I'm curious if you struggled with that at all. Um, well, I have two thoughts. One is no, <laughs> Because I felt really prepared and I was definitely more like Jane Andrews, like you said. I knew it. Um, (laughs) Or at least on the outside. Um, So, yeah, I didn't totally relate to the nerves, but definitely the anticipation and and just the immense pressure of taking something like that. Like it's this weird out of body feeling almost. Yeah. When you're sitting in those exam rooms. Yeah. 
it got me thinking about taking the SATs and how on the way, this is totally unrelated, but just a funny memory for me on the way to the SATs. I heard a Britney Spears song on the radio and it was in my head for the entire (laughs) time I was taking the test. I think it was give me more. So the one that's just like the same two words over (laughs) and over. And then I felt so terrible after taking it. And I remember I went to a Dunkin' Donuts to like get a bagel and I got an iced tea, a bottle of like iced tea in a glass bottle out of the refrigerator and I dropped it and it shattered everywhere because I was so like leaving. I was just, I felt sure that like, I just did terribly. Um, and like, I did really well in my writing and reading, but not so great in math. Um, but I found it funny or interesting how Anne says she has a creepy crawling, creepy crawly presentiment that she didn't pass geometry. And I just feel like it's a really interesting example of how our like intuition or our gut, like so many people will say like, follow your gut or like follow your intuition, but actually anxiety can feel a lot. And like fear can fear can feel a lot like your intuition or your gut, like that presentiment feeling of like, I just know I failed. Like, I just know so many of us have like had that, like, Oh, I just know that this terrible thing happened. And then like, it didn't. Mm -hmm. And we so quickly like forget that, but we have feel like, especially when you have a lot of anxiety, like we get these like presentiments of doom a lot that like turn out to be false. (laughs) Mm -hmm. I was curious if you relate to that at all. Yeah. So I'm trying to think back. I feel like it was definitely, it's hard for me to relate to that in terms of like school. Cause if I didn't do well, I usually (laughs) had a pretty good idea of whether I did well or not. Mm. Like, I feel like my anticipation after an exam or something was like more like, did I get a 100 or a 95? Mm -hmm. (laughs) It wasn't so much like I didn't pass. Like if I thought I didn't pass, I probably didn't. Right. Um, Like I definitely remember some of my AP tests just being like, nope, was not prepared enough for this. Mm -hmm. I know I didn't do well. And like I did decent, but not enough to get credit, you know? So it was just like, I had a very, I was definitely Jane Andrews then too, like very level headed about how I, um, did and my anticipation was more of like did I do as well as I hoped I did yeah for me that probably manifests more of like if I messed something up then I would like blow it out of proportion and be like well now the whole thing is ruined Mm -hmm. and then if I just come back maybe two hours later with like a plan or you know having talked to someone then it's like clearly that wasn't that big of a deal or like once I have a solution of how to fix whatever it was, then it feels so much better. So I feel like that's where, um, that overwhelming sense of failure would come in. It feels like for Anne, this is like a test of her worth almost. And like, you know, like, um, there's like so much that's symbolic writing it and it's like a very emotional thing. Did you, did you always kind of have that mindset in school of like, it's just a matter of preparation or like, did you see it as this is a measure of like my worth and I'm either good at this or I'm not good at it. Like I either have a knack or a talent for it or I don't, or did you always kind of feel like I just got to put in the work and it'll be okay. So a little bit of both. I definitely feel like I did not, I did not have 
a very strong growth mindset. Like I just avoided things I wasn't good at. So I used to be like, oh, I'm not good at science. So then I would just not take science. Mm -hmm. Um, And, but at the same time, a lot of people would say, and this is probably why I downplayed it a lot is a lot of people would be like, oh, but you're so smart. I'm like, well, no, I just, I get good grades. Like I'm just good at being in school and being a student. Like anyone could do this. Like if they just put in the work. Um, and some things did come easier to me, but I never felt like it was this natural inclination of like, I'm super smart. Like I wasn't one of those perfect 1600 SAT kids where you just, everything seems to just like, they just get it or they can do a Rubik's cube in three seconds or whatever. Like it, I always had to feel like I had to like work, but I saw it as a challenge. And then I wanted to be like the best at whatever that challenge was. Mm. Um, and then I just avoided challenges where I didn't think I could do it. Yeah. Did you correlate um, grades or your rank or your grades with a sense of worth or value um, or identity? Identity for sure. Yeah, I did too. Yeah. I, feel, I feel like in my house, you know, my older sister was like this beautiful singer. Like she was such a good singer and so talented and she's like a good dancer and um my younger brother was a great musician and um other kids at school were really good at sports and like all these things and I was always just like well I'm a good student so that's my identity (laughs) yeah exactly like I was just mediocre at everything else (laughs) yeah like I did play sports but like school was where I like thrived so yeah it probably felt like if I wasn't good at that then like what's the point like who am I yeah How do you feel with that in adulthood? Because I kind of feel like, interestingly, there are things you can carry into adulthood about being a good student that are useful, like being cooperative at work is a good thing, being able to follow instructions and think critically, like there are good things, but then there are ways in which as an adult, like you realize like, oh, just like being a good student and like following directions is not. (laughs) <laughs> there's more to being a grown-up and like I don't know achieving things and I'm curious if you have any thoughts on that yeah I feel like not having school it's hard to have like a sense of purpose for your free time which is hard to navigate sometimes um and then in terms of work at least for me I think it manifests itself in like the the things at work that I now find that I'm good at. So like right now I'm in a job where I'm very comfortable because I have things that I like really excel at and I'm better at <laughs> better at other people. Than, <laughs> um, so then like that's where I shine. And so then I shy away from challenges where I might not have the expertise. Yeah. Um, so it definitely comes out then. And like, I probably wouldn't make a job switch unless I felt confident that, I could do at least 50% of it well. Mm-hmm. So I feel like that's where that kind of translates, even though you're not in school studying or like following instructions, you're still performing. Mm-hmm. This is also kind of going back in the chapter, but I was just intrigued as we were talking about advice before and how sometimes good advice is hard to follow. Um, and I think you, you made a good point about 
I think a lot of good advice is about letting go of control. And that's why it is hard to follow. Cause I do actually <laughs> think like a lot of good advice is like about being patient or like trusting or doing things that doing less almost like either working hard or kind of knowing when you've kind of done all you can. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I was, I was intrigued by some of the different techniques that they're using to manage their anxiety. So like Miss Stacy is telling them to go outside. So like move their bodies, get fresh air and go to sleep. Um, so we have movement, sleep, and then Moody, Moody doing the multiplication tables in his head. That's actually like a technique that psychologists suggest people is to do simple math in your head when you're anxious, which I've found myself naturally doing as well sometimes. Or like if I'm anxious, I like, I like to do things with numbers, even though I'm not like, you know, super good at math, Mm -hmm. but I like to like play a card game or or something like that. Um, So I just thought that that was, those were interesting kind of anxiety management techniques that hold that hold water, I think, in the 21st century, like moving your body, sleeping, and kind of doing something else with your, giving your brain something else to do. Mm-hmm. Um, those yeah, are that's all, definitely like, what you're supposed to do, <laughs> like what people <laughs> tell you to do, but you're not supposed to stay up studying, especially if it's something that you've been preparing for, for a year, like those three hours aren't going to make a difference. What was your, what was your study style or technique so I feel like I was never good at planning out papers and things like that, where I had to like create something and prep in that way. I was always right up against the deadline, but I do recall for the SATs, I had this very strategic plan of like, I'm going to do a chapter a week or whatever it was. And I started several weeks in advance and actually did like feel fully prepared, um, Cause I do recall like going in like pretty confident. Um, so I think it depended on, on what it was or what else is going on in your life. Cause I feel like when you're in high school, you have so many classes and so many exam, like final exams and like you're doing your regular schoolwork right up until the end. And then you're supposed to study for an exam that's in three days. Like how do you budget your time? But, um, and I feel like that probably manifests itself in adulthood when like right now I have like 10 reminders on my phone that I keep just saying like, remind me tomorrow, <laughs> remind me tomorrow. But I know if I don't start thinking about it now, it's never going to get done in time for whatever it is. And usually the list is too long and like everything I needed to do by such and such date doesn't happen. Like if you're having company and you're like, okay, I need to clean this clean that, prep this, prep that. And then an hour before everyone shows up, you're like, well, that stuff didn't happen. (laughs) I only got to half the things. Let me just go close the doors of the rooms that aren't clean. Mm -hmm. Um, But I feel like that is personally setting high expectations for yourself, which is a little bit different probably than when you're in school and like, you know, what's going to be on the test. I don't know. I'm thinking back to college. I definitely wrote a lot of papers like late at night, the day before. And I actually remember I saw a count, like a count, like not a academic counselor, like a psychological counselor in college just for anxiety that I was having. And I mentioned at one point, like it was, this wasn't why I was going, but it was like, oh, and like, I just, I always like write my papers like 
really late the night before. And like, I, I do well on them, but I feel like I should be doing, I should just be better about managing my time and stuff. He was this very accepting person and he was just like, well, maybe that's just how you write papers. Like he was the first person I ever heard who was just like, maybe that's just how you do it right now. And like, that's okay. Like, it sounds like you're doing okay. Um, but I do, I, I think back to like high school or, you know, anywhere from like middle and high school. And I just think about like, I don't know how I did all of that. Like, I actually don't, the amount of discomfort and challenge I felt every single day, like the amount that you're juggling. And there are so many things that you actively, or at least I actively was felt I was not good at was really hard, like math and science stuff, like taking chemistry and, you know, pre-calc. And like, I was, it was, I, I very rarely do things that are that hard for me anymore. Or like just being Mm -hmm. in gym class and being so uncomfortable and embarrassed every single freaking day. Like I don't, (laughs) and like adults don't generally have to do that in that way. Like to that degree over and over every day of their lives, you know? Right. And I feel like I sound old kids today have even more pressure than we did somehow. I don't know. Um, But going back to like the cramming thing, I actually do also vividly remember we had these like vocab tests like every day for AP history. It was like learn these terms or whatever. And literally as I was walking to class, I would just read the paper, memorize it. (laughs) go in, take the quiz, get a hundred. And then I didn't learn anything. Yeah. Whereas like the SATs, like that preparation, like I could, like I learned it. Like I Mm. like stuck with me and like, I can still do that. Like if I were to get an SAT right now, I would still be able to apply all those strategies. Mm. And I feel like that's true too with papers where I really put in the time. And even if I was writing kind of to the last minute, I was at least like, doing the work ahead of time. I vividly remember those. Whereas the ones where I just wrote it like very quickly to get it done. Like that's not real learning, which everyone tells you (laughs) when you're in the moment, but you don't think about it. There's a difference between memorizing and actually learning. I think that, yeah, I definitely, I remember in my senior year of high school, like once I could drive, um, I would like borrow my parents' car and actually go to the library to do my some of my homework and studying and just cause I, like I grew up in a small house with a lot of siblings and stuff. Mm-hmm. And it was very freeing to be like, Oh, like I can actually make the very like conscious choice to like go somewhere where I'm going to totally focus. And I felt a lot calmer. I remember, um, like I vividly remember studying and like making that space and time. Um, and I think like in my life now, I think in my life now, I very much like, even when it comes to the podcast, like if I do my homework the whole time leading up to it, like if I have a guest or whatever, and you know, I, I always am reading their work or like whatever preparation it is, then I don't have to really like make too many notes or do too much like like I just I like I know it and then I can just trust that like when I show up it'll happen it'll like, yeah, exactly yeah um or if I have to like give a 
give a presentation or something. It's the same thing. It's like when I had my dissertation in college, my senior year, and I had to like defend it. I didn't write, like I had bare minimum note cards, but like I knew it. Right. And that's true at work too. If you're like training a group of people in a workflow you really, really know, or if someone's just like, can you present two slides on this thing? And you're like, uh, let me scramble and put that together. I guess I could. Like there's two, those are two very different things. Yeah. Yeah. Sometimes you do just know it so well. You're like, I can just talk and it'll be fine. Yeah. I think that's why like my writing papers at the last minute worked okay for me in college because it was that, like I was doing all that work in preparation. It was just the physical act of writing it that- I would like avoid sometimes or put off because I could pull it together quickly because I did know what I was doing. It right. wasn't the best strategy. It was stressful. I lost some sleep, but like, I think it worked out because I was actually learning. Um, what about just um, in terms of your anxiety management strategies? Do you, um, do you relate to like those um, suggestions of going outside or going for a walk, moving, sleeping, doing math? Like what are your anxiety management strategies? Hmm. Or do you not experience anxiety ever? No, I definitely <laughs> do. <laughs> um, I wouldn't, I feel like, hmm. well, when I'm, I guess, in a good place, like not too much going on, I definitely take that time for myself of like, I'm going to do yoga twice a week or whatever it is, like stepping away or um, giving myself the grace to sit down at nine o'clock at night and not do all the million things I haven't done that day, like watching TV or whatever. Um, But I feel like sometimes I just give off the sense of that I'm managing my anxiety well and give this outward appearance of, I'm very calm and cool. And it's really not true. (laughs) Yeah. I relate to that. I'm glad that I can project that for others. (laughs) Calm under pressure. I get a lot at work and I'm like, okay, that's good. I'm glad I give that off. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) It's not always the case. Yeah. I feel like there's pros and cons to that. Like I, I genuinely am glad that other people get the sense that I'm calm, but then it's sometimes like the more that you're holding it in, the more, the less calm you feel. Inside. Yeah. Yeah. Or maybe sometimes I am like level-headed and calm under pressure, but then like I'll get home from work and then I just like can't move, mm-hmm. you know, like I just sit on the couch. So it's like, maybe it was fine in that moment, but it goes somewhere. Like you right. can't just bury it. It's taking a lot of energy. Yeah. Yeah. Did we miss anything from your notes? I have one tiny note mm-hmm. <laughs> about her dislike of Josie. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I don't know. She's like, I don't think I'll ever learn to like her. And I'm like, good for you for trying because I definitely would not have tried. I would have just been as vindictive back. I know. I think that Anne like so admires mrs allen and miss stacy even like in this chapter like she tells moody like you can't leave you have to finish the test for miss stacy like it wouldn't be fair to her and Mm -hmm. um we learn that like after she gets the she learns that she 
is at the top of the list. Like she has a serious talk with Mrs. Allen, um, which like, we don't know what they talked about really. Right. Right. Which is like, they're kind of mysterious. <laughs> it's a weird way to end the chapter. Yeah. But I feel like she just has these figures in her life who are like telling her like, the, who are these like moral compasses that are like, all right, Anne, you can't hate Josie. You have to try to like her. You know, I feel like mm-hmm. she really admires them. She wants to emulate them. And they are these kind of true North stars for her that, or yeah, these North stars yeah. for her that are constantly encouraging her to like live these values and have integrity. And it's something like interesting. I feel like I had that more when I was younger and sometimes I kind of miss some, some of that like structure of being a kid and just being like, these are the things that I think are right. And I'm just going to try really hard to do them. Mm-hmm. Well, and you have like adults in your life directing you for that. Whereas then you become an adult and you don't you lose that a little bit. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. Um, the final thing that I wrote down was the ending when Anne does find out that she made the top of the list and she's very, very calm. I feel like we see this a lot with Anne where like she's so expressive and emotive and dramatic when she's dreaming about things or anticipating things or dreading things. And then like when big things happen, she kind of like something happens and she doesn't react the way that I think people think she will or that she even mm-hmm. I find it really interesting yeah I wonder though if that's true for a lot of people though like like for me I actually find it embarrassing to open presents in front of other people mm-hmm. because I feel like they're expecting some kind of reaction and I'm not dramatic like that or maybe even myself too like I'm really excited about something but then I like and I anticipate like oh you know as soon as this person walks in the door I'm just gonna run over and give them a big hug and then they walk in the door and I'm like hey yeah (laughs) um and I feel like that's true too when like bad things happen especially if you know if you are an anxious person you're constantly thinking of worst case scenarios when a worst case scenario actually happens you don't realize that's what it is or you don't react in the way you think you would when you're imagining it you know I mean the like the most basic example I guess it's like someone dies like people die it happens so like you're going to experience that and then like how you act in that moment I feel like for me is very different than how I would anticipate I'm going mm. to act or like once that moment's passed and you look back you're like oh okay I actually handled that fine but when you're anticipating something horrible like that happening, it you just imagine it differently, I feel like. So I think for Anne, like, the drama is in the anticipation. Yeah. But then when it happens, it's like, okay, well, it happened. So now I'm, you know, I just move on. I don't know. Yeah, it's like a theme that recurs. But it is just interesting, like, for her to get so calm about Because even, you know, when Matthew gave her the dress for Christmas, you know, she was like jumping up and down all excited. So there's something about this that's like tapping into something for her. I don't know. (laughs) Like she doesn't, she can't quite process it in the moment. And Diana's like, I'm more excited than you. Like what's going (laughs) on? 
Yeah. Maybe it feels childish to jump up and down. <laughs> yeah. Or like there's some, yeah, there's like something solemn about it. Maybe also because like her having the serious talk with Mrs. Allen, like, I don't know, maybe there's some sort of sense of responsibility with it or something. Yeah. Know. Or the, the satisfaction is different. I don't know. Maybe because the stakes were so high for her personally. Yeah. I'm really glad that this was the chapter that you and I talked about because I feel like it really lent itself to something that I didn't know about you that was very relevant. Yeah, thanks for inviting me. 